Uh, thanks, Ralph. Thanks, Jim. And uh, thanks for affording me the opportunity to be here today. Um, uh, I spent actually about 10 days writing this analysis and kind of going through it. Um, I, I, I did have to find myself um, turning off the TV uh, the last three days because things were popping around so much it was kind of distorting looking at the data to see what was really there. Um, there is no question, and by the way, I, I want to mention the Senate people who came over. Um, you did a great job. My wife found out about the speech today, and she's in Iowa today, uh, which is going out of your way to not to come to the House side. Um, the election we just finished um, was certainly unusual. It was unprecedented. Um, and I think not only everyone in the country, but particularly the political pollsters, uh, we found ourselves in uncharted waters. Um, I found my time, myself at a time when I did have to go on TV, and I tried to do less and less of that as the campaign went on. Um, always trying to stay within the data, not to give my own opinion. Um, and uh, I found that neither camp, whether it was the Democrats or the Republicans, necessarily wanted to hear just within the data, um, as opposed to using the data to promote one side or the other. But it was an election that was hard to promote one side or the other because it was uncharted waters. Never before in politics have we had two nominees that had over a 50% unfavorable rating. We had absolutely no idea what the impact of that was going to be. Now, we were looking at some numbers, but we didn't necessarily know what was going to happen with those numbers. I think after the election, one of the things that became obvious, because those numbers never changed, both candidates started off with a 55% unfavorable rating and never dropped below that point, except for a couple of points and a couple of surveys along the way. The only thing that changed was the intensity of those negatives increased for both candidates. And in the case of Trump, the intensity of his positives also increased uh, with the voters, something that Hillary did not see. To a point that by the end of the campaign, Donald Trump had something that normally we see negated in a presidential campaign. And he had an eight-point advantage on intensity of his voters in terms of turning out. Well, before I get into the numbers today, I thought I would talk a little bit about the election. I've, I've loved people going from talking about what they think was hap happening to being the pundits of what happened in the campaign. Um, it's always much easier to sit and look at the numbers and kind of see what's happening as opposed to guess what's happening. And to see what's not happening when very often a lot of people are out there talking about what is happening. Um, one of the things I have come to a conclusion of, um, and if you look at the negatives, Donald Trump's negatives were always driven by his persona. Um, and what is interesting is that on the day he announced, there was a core group of people that liked him from what they had seen of him over the years. And there were a core group of people, a majority, who didn't like him from what they had seen over the years. With Hillary Clinton, her negatives were driven by the politics of her past, how she operated in politics. And so it was somewhat different, and yet neither of those two numbers moved through the campaign. 
when we were probably one of the most interesting surveys to compare, uh, in the fall, uh, I was doing the polling for Future 45. If, if you all didn't notice that out there, that was the Sheldon Alderson. Uh, we spent about $72 million in September and October, most of it in October. Um, we started off early trying to promote Donald Trump um, because there was so little of that coming from the campaign. It was all about anti-Hillary. And then what we found in the polling is that nothing you would say about Donald Trump would improve his favorables, and nothing you could say about Hillary Clinton would improve her favorables. And so we went all out going after Hillary Clinton. But we did a poll in the first week of September, and we found the following. And these numbers remained throughout the entire campaign. 41% um, uh, of the electorate liked Hillary Clinton and did not like Donald Trump. 37% of the electorate liked Donald Trump and did not like Hillary Clinton. The group of voters that is usually the swing voters in a campaign, they're a little bit less political, a little bit more apolitical, if you will, is normally there's about 20 to 22, 23% that like both candidates, and that's where the battle is fought. <coughs> that's what they're fighting over, either to make you like them more than the other candidate, or to dislike the other candidate more. <coughs> this year in this campaign, the group of voters who like both <coughs> candidates was only 2%. And that's with an error factor of 3.1%. <laughs> so it could have been zero. But we found 18% of the electorate dislike both candidates. That became the swing vote in this election. That was the uncertainty on the, on the election because that was the uncharted waters of the election. Now, of the 41% that liked Hillary Clinton, she was getting 90% of that vote. Of the 37% that liked Donald Trump, he was getting 91% of that vote. <coughs> of the 18%, the 2% was unmeasurable on where they were going. But of the 18%, Donald Trump was getting 19% of that vote, Hillary Clinton was getting 18% of that vote, and the rest of the vote was either undecided, but most of that vote was going to third-party candidates. And so what we never knew was, what were those voters going to do? Were they going to vote third party? Were they going to collapse as the two major parties got most of the attention? Or were they going to stay at home? The concern we had to look at those numbers below the presidential level was in state after state after state, our Senate candidate was up, was running about 10 to 15 percent, certainly 15 percent or more in Ohio with Portland where they were for our Senate candidate, but they were part of that 18% and not for Trump. And so whether if they stayed at home, that was not good news for Portland. And that was true in state after state after state. And one of the untold stories of this campaign, and I'll give a great deal of credit to the Senate committee, was that they made a decision very early on because they didn't know what was going to happen with traditionally what came under the presidential campaign, what was going to happen with voter ID and turnout. 
And they then forced their Senate campaigns to put together a voter ID and turnout operation first on their campaign. So we get to the exit poll, and everyone's saying, first of all, all this rumor of the polls not being correct. Um, first of all, Hillary Clinton got 2.1% victory of the popular vote. The polling was saying 3%. They then, when the press didn't like that story, they then started switching, well, the state polls were all off. What was interesting about Real Clear Politics when I went and checked it, the last state poll that was done in the averages of the key states ended on Tuesday night, a week before the election. So of course they didn't reflect what happened in that last week, if there was going to be movement in that last week. So the exit poll showed, of the voters who voted, 41% liked Hillary Clinton and did not like Donald Trump, identical to what it was in the first week of September. And she won that group of voters by 98%. She solidified that vote in the fall. Donald Trump had 36% who liked him and did not like her, only down 1% from what we had in September in the first week. And he won 98% of that vote. There was only 2% of the voters who voted on election day who did not like either candidate. That remained constant all the way through the campaign. And then there were 18%, the same 18% as the first week of September, who disliked both candidates. The difference is, is um, on election day, they voted 49% to 29% for Donald Trump. That is what put them over the top. That at the end of the day, that group of voters decided, I may not like him personally, but I don't like her at all. And one of the things I always joke around with my, some of my Republicans that still don't like Trump were, the, were those Republican voters that were unfavorable towards Trump? It's like having a doctor that you hate his bedside manner, but you're hopeful that he's going to save your life. <laughs> and that is where a certain group of Republican voters are today. In the key target states, it's even more interesting. Um, in Pennsylvania, with that group of, of voters, he won by 25 points. In Ohio, he won by 30 points. In North Carolina, he won by 35 points. In Florida, he won by 37 points. In Wisconsin, he won by 37 <coughs> points uh, with that group of voters that dislike both candidates. Now, we were, again, for uh, Future 45, we were in the field on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday before the election in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, and Ohio. And we saw that movement with that group. Not only that movement, but it intensified as the week went on. To a point that by Thursday, we had him leading in Florida and Ohio by good margins. We had him leading by an outside the error factor margin in North Carolina, and we had him one point up in Pennsylvania. Exactly the outcome of those elections. So if you're doing the polling correctly, you can kind of get at it. Um, one thing on the, on, on the Kind of a good reminder for everyone, by the way, uh, because I see Washington doing it every time in a presidential race. And sometimes it happens to such an extent that it drives public opinion because it becomes such a message. This kind of 
perception that Hillary was going to win the election because she had a three-point margin. Um, she did win by 2.1%. She won by 2.9 million votes. You know what the difference was? She won by 4.9 million votes in two states. Her margin was 4.9 million vo more votes in two states. California and New York. One of the surprises of this election is usually Texas offsets the margin in the combination of Illinois and Massachusetts. This time, Texas only equaled each of those states individually because Texas was much closer at the time. But we can't fall into this trap in future presidential elections of looking at the national numbers, even though everyone says it's the state numbers that matter. They let it drive their opinion based on what they're seeing on the national data when you're not only looking at a three-point difference or two-point difference in the national data, you're looking at almost a five-point difference driven by the two states. And a good reminder for the state. So we come to where we are today. Um, I don't know why it would surprise anyone that we had an unconventional campaign and an unconventional candidate why we're not going to have an unconventional president. Um, the, uh, and I've gone from kind of cautiously optimistic um, to actually thinking what I'm seeing in the last couple of weeks is actually a good thing. Um, there are those hesitant Republicans who um, question whether he was really a Democrat, <clears throat> along with questioning his persona. And we saw the big blow up this weekend um, over the immigration issue. And I'm sitting back watching it, not detail by detail the way my wife was having to deal with it with Joni. And they're sitting there driving a message of, I'm doing what I said I would do. That's not important for his core supporters. That's important for those Republicans that are reluctantly supporting him. It's helping those Republicans that hope that that doctor can give them life. And a very important message. Um, I've watched the Supreme Court the last 24 hours. Um, I like the messaging I see out of there. Um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on how much we actually control now in terms of not only the federal government, but the state government. Our one Achilles heel is the filibuster in the Senate. That that can be used to keep us from moving forward in the agenda, because that's the way it was set up, <coughs> is to help the, the minority slow down the majority. He has, in the last 24 hours, done more to educate the American <coughs> public on that rule being there than anything we've done in the last two years. I'm trying to say just because we got control of the Senate doesn't mean we can move the legislation. So one of the things we did in this poll is we didn't, and I'm going to try to leave plenty of time for questions at the end. One of the things we did in this poll is we didn't ask a name ID on the survey. Because I want to look at the data from a different perspective. One of the questions I have in my mind as a pollster, is that if you have an unconventional president, 
are you going to come up, have to come up with a new set of measurements to test whether or not that person is getting through, whether they're actually getting to the voters. Certainly what we know is that after he was elected, his name awareness improved by a net 25 points overnight. He was at a 60% unfavorable rating on election day. He's now down in the mid-40s. He was at the low 30s in terms of favorables. He's now up into the 40s. And all the talk going into the inauguration about historically he has the lowest favorability rating of anyone in, in modern history. First answer to that is, you know what, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, she would have been suffering from the same problem, number one. And number two, there was this 25-point improvement, even though he's still upside down by a couple of points on his unfavorable. There was that improvement. It was those Republicans coming home and saying, I may not like his bedside manner, but he may save my life. And I hope that he does, for what I believe in. Um, so we, asked, we actually took something we saw after the election, because I thought it was very interesting. We asked a question, how do you feel, what emotions do you feel about the way the election turned out? And we asked it again in this survey. And it's very interesting. Yes, we have a divided America. I mean, quite frankly, um, I've done this for a long time. Not only have I done it professionally for 42 years, I did 10 years before that as a child volunteering in campaigns and working in campaigns. So I've been working in campaigns ever since 1964, uh, to give you some background <laughs> on that. Um, this campaign was something like I've never seen before. But I think we're looking at possibly some time coming up that will be very different than anything we've seen before also. Um, we asked a question, how do you feel about the election? And even though America is divided, and basically where parity is a party, has been for almost two decades now between the two parties. So the fact that we are divided is not surprising if we all take our political corners. And the results were 22% said they were excited about the election of Donald Trump. 25% said they were hopeful. 24% said they were concerned. And 24% said that they were scared about the election of Donald Trump. Now the thing I liked about that measurement, and again, we'll see over time if this is working, is that instead of looking at it, you're either for us or against us, it gave us some texture to those people that is there an opportunity to solidify those that are hopeful but are not necessarily Trump people, as he used to talk about in the campaign? And is there an opportunity to move into that group of people that are concerned, but on many of the issues we want to push are very supportive of it? And the most thing that they're supportive of is making a difference in their daily lives. And so I saw through the survey, and I'll mention it as we go through some of the, some of the questions, that there is an opportunity to take that 50-50 split and actually grow it into a real majority, the way we have a real majority as we control government. 
Um, now, one of the things that didn't come as a surprise, because these feelings are not going to change overnight, um, is we asked some of the questions we did a year ago about government. Um, and the numbers, even after the election we just went through about making America great, and we're going to change Washington, and we're going to drain the swamp, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, the negative feelings towards Washington didn't move an inch. When asked, is government part of the problem or part of the solution, 65% today say it's part of the problem. 68% a year ago said it was part of the problem. We also saw something that was new in the data last year from what we've seen over the years. Is a question, is government part of the problem? Uh, uh, is, is, uh, is the federal government, I'm sorry, doing enough, too much, or about right in terms of what they're doing? Um, what we saw last year is what we saw in the survey again. 66% of the American public said the government is not doing enough. Now they think government's the problem, but they also say government's not doing enough. And how that is different, and it was a surprise when we saw it last year, that traditionally that group then branched out, and Republicans said government was trying to do too much, and Democrats said government was not doing enough. Um, we really have to dig down in this data, because what you now have, and Democrats are actually reflecting more where Republicans are. I think government is part of the problem, and I think they need to do more to affect my daily lives. Don't take this to mean that people want more government or bigger government. They want effective government. And that is very deeply held with those voters and an opportunity that they're not going to change overnight just because Trump says he's going to make America great again. But it is an opportunity to play to those voters and to move them in. So we focused on the survey. Again, we stayed away from the kind of personalities and really looked at some of the key issues. We also decided to focus this survey on economic issues. Because everything that we saw during the election, first of all, traditionally as Republicans, we have an advantage when it comes to foreign policy, national defense, terrorism. We have an advantage on those issues. We are assumed be stronger on those issues by the voters. And the only time we lost that, and it came down to even between the two parties, was right after Osama bin Laden had been killed. And it evened out for about six months and then went back up to an advantage in the last election for us. When we asked a series of top economic issues, what is most important for the president? First of all, I will say it's a rather diffuse issue. There's a variety of different issues uh, that, that voters grabbed onto. But two really jump out, and I'm going to leave the hardest for last. One was 23% mentioned health And 25% mentioned either wages, or, uh, creating jobs, or increasing wages and benefits. Um, so half of the voters, when asked about what the president should do economically, focused on those two. 
But then everything else was single digits, including tax cuts, was at 9%, and kind of down from there. So basically what we did in the survey is we looked at three different areas, key areas, um, in terms of policy, economic policy. Um, one was we looked at taxes. Second is we looked at trade. And third, we looked at uh, health care. Now I'm going to just jump ahead with healthcare for just one second. Um, something, and I think I've talked to this group about this before. Um, one of the things over the years that I've noticed in Washington is that very seldom do we, we, we keep getting caught in the wrong phase. Issues go through four very distinct phases in the voters' minds. You talk about the problem, you talk about solutions, you implement solutions, and then that creates a new set of problems. And it's an endless cycle. It's an endless cycle. And I know all of you very often try to anticipate problems created by your solutions, but they're always going to be there. And that's always the cycle that is there. One of the things we saw in healthcare in the campaign, and it was actually a turning point where they started softening a little bit on their intensity against Trump. And our Senate campaigns really started get, gaining some steam was in late September when the cost of health care became a major issue. And as much as we talk about repeal and replace of Obamacare, if we don't understand that the voters are no longer there, they're in the phase of here's the problem created by the solution of Obamacare. The problem is not Obamacare. The problem is the cost of health care. And I'm, we're going to go into some more detail on this. But if you don't look at health care as you're doing it and understand that everything you do on health care has, has to answer the question of what is this going to do to lower the cost of health care? Because if you don't do that, if you're not able to do that, at the end of the day, we're going to be sitting there four years down the road with them saying, you changed things and healthcare costs got worse. Because to them, it only goes two directions. It either gets better or it gets worse. I loved watching Obama try to argue we slowed down the rate of increase. Who cared? The voters certainly didn't. So let me get into taxes. There were four proposals that we asked about. Um, uh, one was a very direct deduct some children, uh, child care expenses and elder, elder care uh, from their taxes. These first two proposals, that and the Made in America tax, very high support level. 88% supported the first, 81% supported the second. And what I always look for is intensity. What is the intensity of the support on those measurements? And it received 61 and 56% intensity. In fact, if you look at it, the intensity of the support on those measurements were five or six times higher than the total amount of opposed. That's a good measurement to get involved in because you had some wiggle room on getting that policy through. 
On allowing U.S. companies to move profits earned and taxed overseas into the United States as a, as a corporate tax of 10%, it was a plurality support, but not a majority support, 47%. 39% opposed. Strongly support to strongly opposed was 21 to 20. So the intensity was down on both sides. But I think one of the things I see in this measurement is that um, there was a lot of undecided on this measurement. They don't quite know what all this means. And if, in fact, as has been rumored, you tie a proposal like this to something like it's going to pay for infrastructure, these numbers would change very, very quickly. That you give them a reason for doing it rather than for them to have to guess. And then lowering tax, <clears throat> tax rate for corporations from 35% to 20%. Um, everyone took their political corner on this. The Democrats went, Demo went, went against it. The Republicans went for it. Independents were slightly against it. 45% um, favored, 50% against, and 29% um, were strongly for it. Um, but you do have to look at that, that what that would tell me, looking at from a polling situation, is this is a tax that has to be weaved in a total package. If you allow this to be talked about um, just by itself, then you're going to allow the Democrats to drive it as a message on traditionally what they go after. jump a little well let me let me talk a little bit this this is a good place to stop one of the things I've always seen in campaigns and I always love talking to people on the hill about this um, that don't get involved a lot in the policy and in, in the campaign and what's said back and forth in the campaigns Republicans are very honest when we talk policy we talk policy the Democrats are always dishonest in policy talks. They don't talk about the policy. They talk about and question the intentions of our policy. That's how they kill in public opinion our policies that we're pushing for. And one of the things that I will hopefully remind everyone as we go through these fights, I think Trump, from what I've seen, instinctively understands you have to make part of the argument about your intentions. And I know from watching the speaker that he inherently has a very good ability, as much as a policy wonk as he may be, he has a great ability to weave in before he even talks about the policy. Here's the intentions of what we're trying to do. And we would win a lot more battles out there if we're arguing over what our intentions are rather than arguing about the specifics of our policy. And I think we have an interesting combination on moving those policies forward. No place is this more true than on tax cuts, in dealing with tax cuts. They will paint it as for the big, big and rich. They will paint it as for the big corporations. They will find opportunities to try to get more input on small business by highlighting what you're doing for major corporations and not for small business. The small things that will come into play in the give and take on the tax issues. 
And I think we may finally have some players that are going to play the game to the detriment of the Democrats. Okay, trade and welfare reform. I, I've been saying this, and you know, if you, if you think about the presidential campaign, um, it was an issue in both the Republican and Democratic primaries. There are policies that came out, and it was discussed a good deal by both the presidential nominees in the campaign. And I've been seeing this develop for some years. There's always been potential for it. That yes, Republicans in the general public generally is pro-free trade, but they also are fair trade. They also always question, are they getting a fair shake on, on trade? And certainly things over the years have raised that question. Certainly Trump has done a very good job of highlighting those questions. When we got into these uh, proposals, um, again, very, very high numbers. Imposing import tax on goods by making companies that move production factories in, from the United States to other countries, 72% favor. Taking actions against China that alter the value of the money and hurt American workers. And we even added in, even if it would increase the cost to you, 68%. Uh, rene renegotiating NAFTA, 56%. Now what was interesting on the NAFTA question is you saw some fall off from the Democrats on this issue, even though traditionally Democrats, and particularly the union people, have been more supportive of that. So I think there's some shoring up that has to be done on that issue, that it's going to be done for their interest. But certainly, 56% um, is not bad. And then even on changing federal safety programs like Medicare and food stamps, to block grant programs where states receive a set amount of money to fund these programs in a way that they think best. 50% said yes. 43% said no. Now, I think one of the secrets we have on this particular issue is number one, we now have 33 of the 50 governors in the country. 33 of the 50, we have two-thirds of the governors of the country are now Republican. And their job approval ratings are much higher than anyone that is representing a member here. Um, the governors are holding up in terms of their name ID. And I think there's some potential. One of the things we saw, by the way, in the data, um, and I th think this is where the general exit polling kind of misstates um, what is happening. If you look at who turned out in this election, um, there wasn't that much difference in terms of age groups. There was the same number of Hispanics voted in this election as four years ago. African-American vote was down by a percent. White vote was up by a percent. <coughs> And other vote was the same. Now that kind of misstates a little bit what really happened. Because if you look at the white vote, the white vote was actually down in the suburbs in this election and through the roof in the rural areas and small towns across the country. Now some of that had to do with Trump touching those voters. Some of that had to do with the Senate campaigns, unlike a presidential campaign, was not putting all their get out the vote in the suburbs 
they were putting their turnout statewide. And so you took the intensity of Trump and the organization of the Senate campaigns, and it was a perfect storm in terms of what we were getting with those voters. The other thing you see, though, in this, this talk about low-income or lower-middle-class voters being for Trump, um, even that is a little bit misstated. Um, one of the things we crossed all our data with is some ratings out there on distressed communities. And you perhaps heard a little bit about distressed communities during the campaign. The interesting thing in looking at distressed communities is to take race out of it and look at just the white voters according to the distressed communities. And yes, where the most of the five rankings, the most distressed communities, <coughs> are in the inner cities of the big cities across the country. When you looked at, from a numerical standpoint, how many whites are actually in that component part, it's not that many white voters, or not a large number. Where you looked at the number four on the list of most distressed communities, and number three, they were all in the small towns in the rural areas. All in the small towns in the rural areas. And that's where the vote was up. And one of the things I know from working with many governors is that one of the things you would see them sell, I believe, in their states, is that if you block grant these programs to the states, then they can start unraveling these one-size-fit-all poverty programs that are built for the inner city but don't work well in the rural areas of the country. And there's where we could get a real boost in terms of that vote and solidifying that vote and keeping the intensity of that vote going into the future. So very important issue there. Okay, healthcare, and I'm gonna, I wanna make sure I leave enough time here. Let me just mention real quickly, we tested all the healthcare proposals, various pieces. Um, you know, everything that we tested, whether it was, uh, you know, portability, whether it was uh, pre-existing condition, uh, whether it was children being insured by parents up till 26, all of those pre proposals got very high responses. If you look at approval rating of Obamacare, it's virtually a 50-50 split. And the one thing that kind of jumped out is not positive, was all Americans are required to e either purchase health care insurance or pay a substantial fine to the federal government. 65% said they did not pay for that. So basically, they want all those things, but the one thing that may help prop it up which was always the, the, the mistake of Obamacare, they don't want anything to do with. But I'll come back to my earlier point on healthcare, that the key to healthcare is test. Run everything through that test of how is this going to lower the cost of healthcare. And that's the key we're gonna to get to at some point, as opposed to making this just a fight over um, over repealing and replacing. Now, what was interesting is we asked a question on repealing and replacing. Um, how, how you would feel, how long you would feel before you felt he broke his promise. Basically, he has three years. Now, I will contend to you in terms of that, that they will feel like he hasn't broken his promise if it is repealed and replaced in three years. I think that's the margin of when they have to start feeling the effects of healthcare costs coming down. And so that's the time frame we're working in. 
The time frame is not when we refill and replace. The timetable is when do they start filling relief in terms of what is there. So finally, we went into some, <coughs> some um, agree-disagree statements. Um, and these is where you think about the four groups. You think about those that are excited, hopeful, concerned, scared. Um, these questions all not only dug deeply into those that were concerned, but dug deeply into those that said that they were scared about the results of the election. Uh, programs uh, uh, being subject to performance reviews, 94% approval rate approved of that measurement. Federal regulation should be sunsetted, 79% um, approval of that. Federal workers should be rewarded if they do a good job and easier to fire if they do a poor job. 85% approved with that. Uh, problems, now we did ask a question on, do you want to see a compromise on tax code between Democrats and Republicans? 84% said yes. And that's where you bring in those extra people on the tax code. Um, the key question here that I would throw out is the question on the next generation. And that's a question that we have watched for decades now. Um, one of the, and this may be one of the new measurements we use to test the Trump administration on successes. If you notice, he said yesterday in a report, the American dream is back. Um, I don't know how much of that is he believes that or that's him selling it, that that's what's coming. But if you see those numbers improve, if you see those numbers improve, you will know that we are effectively reaching out to voters, changing their lives, and making a difference in their lives. When Ronald Reagan came into office, those numbers under Jimmy Carter was at 67%. No, the next generation will not do as well. Today, they're at 65%. If those numbers come down, look for uh, us to really start building in a way we haven't been able to to break that. Now, a couple of things I'm pulling, let me throw out, and then kind of a final message for you. Um, I did go and look today, even though we didn't do it, um, at some various measurements. Um, and if these, and there's not a lot of polling out there yet on this, so we, we don't know which are good polls, which are bad polls. Um, but I looked at his job approval. Um, and I think if you watch the news today, as opposed to look at his job approval, you may be surprised. It's 45% approved, 47% disapproved. It's actually 1.7% upside down. I don't think anyone watching in the press the last, the press the last two weeks would believe those are what the numbers would be. What I was particularly encouraged, though, by is that on handling of foreign policy, um, he has a two-point advantage, 42-40. And on handling of the economy, job approval on the economy, he has a 13-point advantage. A 13-point advantage, 47 to 34. Those, when you think about the press every day, um, you know, there, there is, I don't know whether he's a mad scientist or whether he's brilliant, but their messaging... Um, you always have to look for what are they doing 
as opposed to the surface, what you're hearing. Because it may very well be, as I mentioned, in terms of educating people on the filibuster or convincing people that he will do what he said he would do. Those are as important messages as all the tinkering around the edges we're hearing on the policies. I think what everyone in this room owes to our party and to the future of the country. Um, when I registered to vote for the first time, and I um, couldn't do it till 1971 because the 18-year-old vote didn't come in until after I was already 18. Um, I registered to vote in Oklahoma, and they told me that I needed to vote Democrat, registered Democrat, because that's where all the competition was. And party registration in that state at that time was 18% Republican, 78% Democrat. Two years ago, we passed and became a plurality party in Oklahoma. And just last month, we were at 50% Republican, 44% Democrat. That has taken us 40 years to get to that point. Continually building, building, building. We are at a point today that we more than won the trifecta. We have the presidency. We have the Senate by 52 votes. We have the House by 37 in a majority. And I think they're doing good things to make sure they protect that majority. We have 33 of the 50 governors. And what a lot of people don't understand is we now have 69 of the 98 state legislative chambers in the country. In fact, a little encouragement here, if we get into a balanced budget argument, we only need to get both chambers in one more state, and we will have control of enough state chambers and governorships that we could pass nationally a constitutional amendment. And so that's always a nice threat in terms of what the Democrats are doing on spending. Um, I would feel at a shame if we lost what we have built, that we don't seize that opportunity, that we don't look for the opportunity to find a way to use all the things we have. I mean, we have a policy guy as Speaker of the House that also understands, understands uh, talking about uh, the, the purpose behind what you're doing. We have a Senate leader who is good at a lot of things, but he is brilliant in terms of the legislative process. And we have Trump. You can mention two a lot bills, of pluses and minuses. But the one thing he can do and he's shown he can do is sell it. And we need to figure out how to do what we need to do policy-wise and put him in a position to go out and sell it. Because if there's one thing I do have confidence in him, is that he could sell anybody anything. <laughs> and right now, we need him to sell what we believe in. So, what okay. can I answer? <laughs>